it's the same point we make to our clients all the time about it depends how you document things and it's important you document them correctly at the time. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Episode 374 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Why does it matter whether share capital is marked fully paid or not fully paid in the ASIC portal? And what happens if the ASIC portal says fully paid, but it isn't actually fully paid? These are just some of the questions Damien Lehman of Lehman Law Group in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. a company or when you look up the ASIC details of a company, there's always a discussion about whether share capital is fully paid in or not fully paid in. And the question is, does it matter? Yes, it does matter. The reason it matters is that the amount of share capital, whether it's paid up or not, will be a liability of the shareholder. In most cases, shareholders will, it will make most sense for them to fully pay up the shares that are being issued to them. But in some cases, usually for things like startup companies that are trying to attract investors, they will say, we'll issue you a thousand shares for a dollar each, but you only need to pay one cent on those shares today. And we'll only make you pay the rest of the money when we get enough investors and we need it. The point is whether the share capital is paid up or not, that amount issued for each share is the amount they're liable for, the shareholders are liable for. The point of having a partly paid share or an unpaid share is that the amount those shares are issued for is a receivable to the company, which the company can call in at any time. And usually if they call in the unpaid share capital and payment isn't forthcoming, then the share can be forfeited or sold by the company to someone else. So it just matters with respect to whether the shareholder still has to pay money to the company or not. Yes, so that's to, right. So to do this correctly, if the share capital is fully paid, there shouldn't be any receivable for it. And if the um, share capital is not fully paid, then the company should have an offsetting amount that represents the receivable they have against the shareholder. Yes, that's right. And I would add the normal caveat that every company constitution can say something different if it wants to, the rights about if a partly paid shareholder doesn't pay up the share capital, the rights to forfeit or on-sell their share, that might be changed depending on each company's constitution. And in theory, I suppose they could limit voting rights and other sorts of things for people who haven't fully paid up their shares as well. So there could be, in theory, other effects, but I haven't really seen those come up much in my practice. And when you register a company and you say fully unpaid, that doesn't worry ASIC, correct? Correct. That's right. So for them, it's just a pure admin question. They will register the company one way or another. Whether the share capital has been fully paid or is fully unpaid doesn't really worry ASIC in the slightest. They will still register the company. It's more just than later when it gets more complicated and the company has grown and wants to do certain things, then it might matter whether the share capital is paid in or not. Yes. And I might make a comment too that this this might all seem a bit 
strange and artificial because these days it is, but two or 300 years ago when all of this company law was being developed in England, there were rules that said there was a minimum amount of share capital that every company had to maintain under the what they call the doctrine of capital maintenance. The idea being that if you're a company, you needed to have a certain amount of cash in the bank in case everything, yes, everything went very badly, uh, that there'd be money to pay the creditors out. So you might have had a requirement that you used to have $100,000 of minimum share capital, just as an example. But over time, and particularly since 1998, we've got rid of all those requirements. So now you can have a $1 company that you can set up. And there's all these complicated rules about how you get your $1 out that basically no one cares about anymore because by design, we just put a dollar in because there's no, usually there's no need for us to put any more than that in or even a cent you can put in, basically a nominal amount. And because it's so hard to get your share capital back out again, there's very little incentive to put any meaningful amount in as share capital. You just answered my next question because when you spoke about a $1 company, I was going to ask you, does it even have to be a dollar? Can it also be just one cent? And then I think you already answered it and the answer is yes, it could just be one cent, correct? It's basically a concept we're stuck with for historical reasons that doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore, but it's still in the law. My second question is, so far we spoke about what we say when we register the company. So whether we say it's fully paid or it's not fully paid. What about if in the registration we say that it's fully paid, but then it actually isn't? Does that worry ESIC? Has that any legal consequences apart from the company having a receivable against the shareholder? So it's an interesting question. My feeling is that legally it makes no difference what ASIC What the ASIC register says, the ASIC register is just a place where things are recorded and they're meant to be correct, but recording something on ASIC doesn't make it legally the case. So if ASIC said the shares were fully paid, but they in reality weren't, then legally there would still be a receivable. And if a liquidator was appointed to that company, that they would be legally entitled to recover the unpaid share capital from the shareholders, just like any other debt. So when we register a company, we can say fully paid, even if not everything has been paid. It just means then whatever hasn't been paid is still a receivable. Sort of. Although ASIC doesn't legally change anything itself, there are obligations to keep the ASIC register correct. And I think it's section 168 of the Corporations Act, which says if, in theory, if you don't keep the ASIC register up to date, Uh, it's an offense carrying a $2,000 fine or three months prison or both, which I've never seen actually done. But there's that obligation for the company to keep all the records accurate. And it also can come up in a situation where I assume it's an unusual situation, but there has been case law where there are no records that anyone can find except for the ASIC register. And in that case, The court, at least there's a, there's a case called Cloudzilla in 2017, uh, where the court said, well, we basically, we can't find any other information. So we're going to go by what the ASIC register says as definitive evidence. In that case, it was about um, identifying who were the shareholders at a particular time. In that unusual case, the ASIC register has sort of more power than 
it normally should. And I would imagine most cases, people have at least some company records that would then be relied on. And you would say, sorry, ASIC is wrong. We'll get that fixed immediately so it's accurate. Uh, so that's all a long way of saying, don't say the shares are fully paid up unless they really are. Good. And so if you registered as, as unpaid and then the shareholders pay, then you're meant to change the ASIC register, correct? Uh, yes, I would say so. And if you mark it as fully paid, but it hasn't been fully paid, in a way, it's the same scenario as if the shareholders had paid it in, but then had paid it out again to themselves as shareholder loans, correct? Potentially. I suppose it would be a receivable on the balance sheet until it was paid. Because basically the way it's thought about is you issue me a, a, a share for $100 and I pay $1, so I'm unpaid for nine, the other $99. That $99 is basically a purchase price that I still owe you. So it's, it's sitting there as a receivable in relation to that until I finish paying for the share, basically. Let me ask this again with an example. Let's say we are a construction company, for example, because it's only really specific industries where share capital is an issue because with most companies, as you said, you just have a share capital of $120 or $10 or something in between. But it's certain industries, capital-intensive industries, where certain legal requirements force the shareholders to have quite a lot of capital or lenders might also require quite a lot of capital. And so now let's say it's a construction company and they legally need to have $100,000 of share capital and they register it with ASIC as paid in, but it's not actually paid in. But one could argue they have paid it in and then they paid it out again. Hence, it's a normal receivable that we then need to deal with under Division 7A, etc. That could be the legal defense, basically, correct? To say, yes, we paid it in, but then it was paid out again. But that's a separate transaction. Uh, I could see a basis for arguing that, yes. That's probably more of an accounting question to for me to defer back to you. Yes, look, I could see that being justified. Because treating it as fully paid when we register the companies saves us a lot of headache. Because if we registered as not paid, and usually it's not paid by the time we register the company. If it gets paid, it gets paid later. So if we then marked it as unpaid at the moment, and then we would have to go back and change it to fully paid, that's kind of futile exercise. So I think most accountants will mark it as fully paid. And the defense is basically, you can always argue it's It has been paid in, but then was paid back out again, and hence you need to deal with it in the books. I agree with that. Different question. What is the legal status of additional patent capital? Is it like a loan and we can withdraw it at any time? Or is it more like share capital and hence not as easy to get back out again? What, what's the legal status of additional patent capital? Before 1998, any sort of additional capital would have been called a share premium and recorded in a separate share premium account on the books. But after 1998, they got rid of this whole idea because they got rid of par value as a concept, which is basically saying that the dollars of share capital that are held can be specifically linked to the shares. So really, there's no clear link between each share and each dollar put in anymore. There's just a pot called the share capital account that can be added to by paying more capital in, 
But as you say, you don't really want to do that because it's so hard to get out again. You have to go through a whole process with ASIC and file three different resolutions and, and all of that. So you probably would just do a loan these days to avoid all of that. So you wouldn't you wouldn't characterize it as anything like shared capital. Oh, really? So there isn't really anything like additional paid in capital anymore that you can just take out again as you as you wish. It's either shared capital and registered with ASIC or it's not registered with ASIC and then it's just a loan. That's what you're saying, correct? Yes, that's right. Oh, okay. So Good. it's quite a painful exercise now. So you wouldn't put any more money in. Like You can put in more money in share capital immediately. It's just really hard to get out. But sometimes, you know, shareholders contribute more and then it's shown as something in addition to share capital, like additional paid in capital or something else. And you're saying this doesn't really exist. It's either share capital registered share capital or it's just a loan, correct? That's what you're saying. Yes, that's right. We need to call it something else. Basically show it as a loan. Uh, that's what I would say. And look, I have seen balance sheets done more recently, which still have a separate line item for a share premium reserve and that sort of thing. But because you used to have the par value line and the share premium line, because you might have a constitution that said every share will have a par value of $1 each. But if I'm selling my share to someone, we're issuing shares and the share is worth $1,000, they'll pay $1,000 for it. And you would allocate $1 to share capital account and $999 to share premium account. And there are various reasons for doing that. But in 1998, the law just said, get rid of all that. Just roll them all into one bundle called the share capital account. That then had all of the normal restrictions attached to it that share capital always had. In your example, was shareholder A selling their shares to shareholder B? No, look, it's, it's probably better to talk about issuing shares than selling yes, shares. Yes, exactly. Because I was just going to say, if shareholder A sells to shareholder B, then that doesn't affect the company in the slightest. No, that's right. So you might want to edit that bit out. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. We just clarify it. So you were talking about issuing new shares. Before 1998, which, you know, I was, I was less than 10 years old at the time. This is stuff that I've read, but not lived through. moment I had is that there isn't actually officially additional paid in capital. Whatever you pay in extra is a loan, unless you register it with ASIC. I would say if if you call something capital, it might be by default share capital, which you don't want. So you would characterize it as a loan to avoid it being that. But it's, it's basically how you characterizing it when you give the money. So if you characterize it as capital when you give the money, you might have to show it as share capital and then you might have to tell ASIC about this. So be careful what you call it. Exactly, yes. And we've been talking a lot about what ASIC shows and what the company records show and all that sort of thing. I, I'm not aware that this really comes up in practice very much, but I suspect it comes up if a liquidator gets appointed and goes through all the records and tries to say, well, basically their job is to collect money from whoever they can and they'll go ahead and do that. So It's the same point we make to our clients all the time about it depends how you document things and it's important you document them correctly at the time. Welcome back. So be careful when your clients start talking about additionally paid in capital. After the interview, I went off topic and asked Damien about limited companies. Why would you choose a limited company over a propriety limited If you have a lot of limited clients, then please skip the rest since it's too basic for you. 
Why would you choose limited or propriety limited? I would say the short version is you wouldn't be a limited company, which that's a public company. You wouldn't be a public company unless you are in a situation where you're raising money from the public more generally and or having more than 50 shareholders. The reason you don't want to be a public company is because, if you don't have to be, is because you need to file audited accounts with ASIC. You need to have more uh, minimum three directors. You need to have a company secretary. All of these things which a normal proprietary limited company doesn't need to have. Limited is really something you don't choose. Limited is only something you do if you really need to. And you need to if you want to raise capital from the public or if you have more than 50 shareholders. Yeah, that's basically it, correct? Yes, and those obviously will overlap a lot. Usually you won't have more than 50 shareholders unless you've already been offering shares to more than your friends, basically. And you already touched on the ASIC routes for limited. And so one is that you need to file audited reports. So that means you go through a bit of a painful process every year that also costs money. And you need to have three directors and you need to have a company secretary. But of course, the company secretary can be one of the three directors. Yes, that's right. And two of the, at least two of the directors and the secretary have to be based in Australia as well. Yeah, but that also applies to the Propriety Limited. In the Propriety Limited, you also must have at least one director who's based in Australia. Yes, but it's at least one for Propriety Limited, whereas at least two for ah, public yes. companies. Okay, good. Which, uh, that's that's a pedantic point, but it's it still comes up. Okay, good. Fair point. Two instead of just one. But that's it, correct? Apart from those additional rules, there's nothing else with respect to limited that you have to do extra in comparison to proprietary limited, correct? There's many different things that public companies need to do that proprietary limited companies don't. Okay. So I'm actually dumbing it down too much, aren't I? Uh, well, we've talked about the main ones, but many public companies will be ASX listed companies, but not all of them. And then if they are at that level, there's a whole bunch of other requirements, the ASX rules put yes. on top which usually go hand in hand with most public companies. And um, that isn't really something I work on much, but I think there's stuff like company constitution needs to be public, you know, that you can download it from the internet, which that stuff proprietary limited companies don't have to do. I think there's all sorts of little changes about issuing shares and access to the registered office and all, all sorts of other little things that I think come up. But So the process is really... From a propriety to a limited to an ASX-listed company? Yes, I would say it, it depends on the circumstances. I, it's not necessarily the case that it's bad to be a public company that isn't ASX-listed. There might be different reasons why you fit within the middle. A company that's raising money from the public but for whatever reason isn't ready or doesn't want to actually list on the stock exchange. So it seems to be the case that of there's about 3.1 million companies in Australia today and 99% of them are proprietary limited companies and less than 1% are public companies. So that gives you an idea of economically who's using what structure. And I would say the default position would be use a proprietary limited company unless you're basically forced to be a public company for certain reasons, which will be, are you raising money from the public? And or do you have plans to list on the stock exchange? 
but otherwise you would stay as a proprietary limited company if you fall within those requirements. Another thing to mention is that there's a distinction between a small and a large proprietary limited company. So a small one will basically have none of those requirements to audit or file accounts with ASIC, but a large one will. And a large proprietary limited company is one that will have a either a consolidated revenue of over 50 million, more than 100 employees, or consolidated gross assets of more than 25 million. So you can be a proprietary limited company, but as soon as you're of a certain size, you still need to get your accounts audited and you need to file as an ASIC every year. So they're sort of in this middle area where they don't have the same restrictions and obligations a public company does, but they, they have some of them, at least in relation to the accounts because of their size. That basically means is as you grow as a proprietary limited company, you basically get eased into the additional rules that apply for limited companies anyway. Yes, at least in relation to having to get your accounts audited and, and filed with ASIC. Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 375, Adam Ahmed, a tax lawyer in Sydney, will talk about the superannuation guarantee charge and the SGC statement. The ATO has become a lot more active pursuing late payments of SG and late lodgements of SGC statements because now with STP they can see exactly what is late and so this has become a critical issue for many of us hence the topic for next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.